0: It depended on the kindness of strange all right so he's not a
1: regular rat or, or even a super rat he's Just a scared little mouse that's all huh. i've had two years to grow claws mother jungle Ray. hello and welcome to the real woman a podcast about all things cinematic. I am your host, Emmanuel Perryman. Some of my favorite movies of all time fall into the category of movies about Hollywood, and that is why my next guest is such a thrill for me, the president of Russell Sage College and author of the book Movies About Movies, Hollywood Reflected, Dr. Christopher Ames. Dr. Ames, welcome and thank you for joining me today.
0: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you.
1: Now, your book was published in 1997, so we decided that we'd focus on two movies from the book and two that have come out more recently. Uh, The two from the book are Sullivan's Travels from 1942, directed by Preston Sturgis, starring Joel McRae and Veronica Lake, and Singing in the Rain from 1952, directed by Gene Kelly and Stanley Donnan, starring Gene Kelly, Debbie Reynolds, Donald O'Connor, and Gene Hagen. The other two are The Artist from 2011, directed by Michel Hazanavicius, starring Berenice Bejo and Jean Dujardin, and Hail Caesar from 2016, directed by the Coen Brothers, with an all-star cast led by George Clooney. I'd like to begin with Singing in the Rain and The Artist because they cover similar ground. But before we get into specifics, I'd like to ask about something you said in the book, which is that movies about the movies, quote, illuminates the conflicted cultural significance of motion pictures in American society. Could you elaborate a bit on that?
0: Sure. I got interested in this uh, really thinking about the broader cultural question of what does Hollywood mean in our culture, because it means a lot of different things. And this actually began my background as a literature professor, but I also taught film. And uh, I began with actually a study of the Hollywood novel, uh, which is a very specialized And to me, fascinating subgenre, because it reflects a literary migration that happened in the 1930s, continued into the 40s, when in the Depression, a lot of publishing that authors depended on was really depressed. Um, Magazines were publishing less, Broadway was putting on very few new productions, but it was also the time in which um, talking pictures came to Hollywood, and suddenly they needed lots of writers. And there were opportunities for established writers to make uh, big money there. Novelists like Fitzgerald and Faulkner and Nathaniel West, Aldous Huxley, people who wrote for newspapers like Ben Hecht and James Cain, dramatists like Clifford Odets. Um, And when those people went out to Hollywood, worked with varying levels of success in the movie industry, many of them incorporated or their experience in Hollywood, into the so-called Hollywood novel. And I was working on that project. I had some time off. I was in Southern California. Um, and I ended up doing work on that. But I started thinking, well, the novel's not the only place where you see Hollywood. You also see it in the motion pictures themselves. And that intersected with something I'd always been interested in, which was self-referentiality. Uh, you know, whether it's a poem about writing poetry or a novel about writing a novel, Uh, or a movie about how movies are made. And uh, so when I pulled that all together to get back to what you asked me and started looking at lots of films that took Hollywood as their subject, uh, I noticed certain recurrent themes that I think do touch on the conflicted feelings that we have about Hollywood. One of those conflicts is between reality and illusion, uh, how films purport to show Uh, films about Hollywood are often giving us a glimpse of how films are really made. They're pretending to show what's behind the camera. But by definition, of course, what we see on the screen is not what's behind the camera. It's in front of a camera. So there's a really interesting mix of what's real and what's movie magic. Uh, A broader social conflict is uh, is Hollywood entertainment or is it art? Um, And that reflects a very American conflict between high art and popular culture, a a uniquely American collision between culture and democracy. Related to that is the uh, question of, is it the role of movies to distract us from social problems or immerse us in them? That's really the subject of Sullivan's Travels, as we'll discuss. You know, to use Horace's terms, should they delight or instruct or both? And then the world of romance, of happy endings, wealth, the American dream, as it's depicted in film, is that? It aspiration, or is it simply uh, simply a lie? And I think uh, films like Singing in the Rain take on most of those themes.
1: I agree. Um, so, just a very very brief synopsis. Both Singing in the Rain and The Artist tackle the transformation in Hollywood from silent movies to talkies in the late 1920s. So Singing in the Rain does it in musical format and the artist does it by actually being a black-and-white silent film. It has one brief scene with sound in the middle of the film, and the final scene moves us not only into talkies, but musicals as well. So, uh, beginning with Singing in the Rain, could you speak a little bit about the combining of the movie-about-movie movie genre with the musical genre?
0: Sure, and I think that's really a good question. You know, when you put musicals on film, I think you become hyper-aware of how artificial they can be, right? If you just have a dramatic plot and suddenly people burst into song, um, you have to kind of get over that. That's what musicals are, right? right? But one way to get over it is to have a musical where the music is motivated because the characters are musicians and performers, and they're in some cases, making a musical. You know, there's a lot of the Judy Garland, Mickey Rooney films are, you know, let's create a show. Right. And, and all of a sudden, with the fact that they're performing, it doesn't seem, uh, it's in character. It's within the story. Not every uh, song in Singing in the Rain fits that, but that's that's part of it. So Singing in the Rain is certainly a movie about movie making. It becomes a movie about making a musical as they change uh the the dueling cavalier into the dancing cavalier and make it a talkie. It's also a reminder, as some people say, when the movies began to talk, they sang. Synchronized sound allowed for uh, the musical uh, to be a genre in film, in which it really wasn't in in the silent era, even though there was, of course, plenty of music with silent films, uh, typically live music that was played with them. Um, So I think that's one of the ways in which it works. It's also a very self-referential movie in that one of the final shots in the movie is an advertisement a billboard for the movie Singing in the Rain um, which is the title of the film we've seen the one that's advertised is with Kathy Seldon and Don Lockwood and they're standing in front of the billboard as if what we have seen in the course of the movie is what leads up to watching something like the movie we've watched uh, something that movies are are fond of, of playing with so I think that's, that's part of it. The other thing, you mentioned the setting for both the artist and uh, Singing the Rain being this, uh, the transition from silent films to talking pictures. was Singing the Rain, it's, it's set in that time, uh, which is one of the big crises or changes in the film industry, but it's also made in probably what's the other big crisis or change, which is the coming of television in the 1950s and all the concerns about what that might mean uh, for the medium. And so there's an interesting double focus, I think, about the, the time period in which it's shot and the time period in which it's set.
1: And I think what's interesting about Seeing in the Rain is that when it comes out in the 50s, many of the people, certainly the grown-ups, probably remembered the 20s and that transition, and that, which is a, a familiarity that we as audience members now don't have. Uh, but they would have remembered that trans- transformation and they probably would have more easily recognized the stars that Gene Kelly like was, was, you know, representing a Douglas Fairbanks type of actor. They would have been more familiar with that and they would have been more familiar with the music. I mean, in a way, it was almost a... Uh, a prototype of a jukebox movie that we get now, <laughs> like a, like right, the Mamma Mia. Songs, yeah. Those were all known songs. When I first saw Singing in the Rain, I didn't know any of those songs. That was all new to me. I thought they were all from the movie. Mm. But but certainly audience members at the time would have had uh, a lot of familiarity with not just the time period, but the with that music as well, uh, which I think adds another layer to it and with regards to the artist where singing in the rain is a musical the artist goes in the opposite direction and is actually a silent film and what do you think that that effect has of actually not just being black and white not just being silent but also being shot at 22 frames per second i mean they really tried to sort of get the essence of what a silent movie was at that time.
0: Yeah, I think it's a, well, two things. One, I I think you're absolutely right. The artist is very much based on Singing in the Rain. Um, I think it's also to some extent based on A Star is Born, and we should talk about that. But it's, uh, both of them are playing with the the myth that, um, the myth which had some truth to it that the transition from silent movies to talkies was a very difficult one for actors. You know, there's the somewhat untrue story that John Gilbert had a weird squeaky voice that ruined his ability to be in talking pictures, which is really the story behind Lena Lamont and Singing in the Rain. What's probably closer to truth, his voice appears to have been just fine, is that he had a histrionic style of acting that worked in silent films and, and, and didn't translate well to uh, to talking pictures. And that's, of course, the dynamic in in the artist as well. I think the difference that's made by the artist being a silent film is that Singing the Rain pays very little attention to the greatness of silent film and that there were things lost. I mean, the one piece of attention it does is to show very comically how early sound pictures were riddled with technical problems and the, the, you know, people could move and you'd hear the microphones and the crinkling and you'd see the cables going out and, and, and so forth. But the idea that there really was a sophisticated world of motion pictures um, done in silent form, uh, it isn't really there at all. I mean, Kathy Selden calls says it's just a bunch of dumb show. The artist, because it chooses to be in the medium that the world is moving beyond, uh, really lets us appreciate what's being lost uh, in a way. So it's a, it's a different, they both have the mythology that we come out better at the end. And they're both things that resolve the romantic plot along with the problem. Uh, and they both resolve it through song and dance or through dance, I guess, explicitly in the artist. Um, but the fact that we experience a silent film, which is very different for today's audiences, um, I think is really distinctive for the artist.
1: And you mentioned one thing about Lena Lamont in the book that really fascinated me, which is that you question why is she the villain? Could you expand on that a little bit? I just find that that angle fascinating because I'd never really thought about it. I just sort of accepted that she was the bad guy. Um, but but, you know, is she really? Well, it, yeah, I think it's interesting. When, when you've got a,
0: a happy ending in, in a movie, I think, or a, or a play or a book, it's always interesting to ask who's left out. Uh, and Lena Lamont is the one that's left out. And one of the ironies is when they actually fix the problem of her voice by having Kathy Selden uh, speak her lines and sing her songs, and they release uh, The Dancing Cavalier, and it's a big success, Lena realizes, well why would the studio want to mess with this, right? Uh, they use my stardom and my face, and they've got this person doing my uh, dubbing my voice behind me. It's a successful uh, formula. And so they work out this thing to expose her, where they pull up the curtain and show somebody singing behind her, speaking behind her. And, and that ruins her, and it sets up the happy ending where uh, Don and Kathy can be together. I think if we say, okay, what makes Lena Lamont uh, the villain... One of the things is she believes her own press, right? Mm-hmm. She, she thinks Don's in love with her, even though that's just a publicity game. Um, she's also a traditional blocking character. We in the audience see her as the person who stands in the way of the two people who should get together getting together. And she's also someone who is not self-reflective. Uh, you know, Don Lockwood, even though he puts out a lot of bogus press about himself, too, understands his limitations Alina you know doesn't understand what's wrong with my voice so she lacks a certain kind of self-consciousness um so she's somewhat mean-spirited I guess um and and that's part of it it's a movie that wants to bring everyone together she stands in the way Um, but she's also someone who believes at least in the movie within the movie the illusion that uh, she and Don are
1: lovers. Now, one of the themes of *Singing in the Rain* is dignity, and both Don Lockwood and Kathy Selden, in their own ways, profess this. You know, they they're they're of the theater. He is a bit more elaborate in his sort of tall tales, but they both try and have this image of dignity and 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 sort of put down movies as entertainment and lowbrow, even though they actually both want to be in film. I mean, it's sort of an odd dichotomy. Where, you know, and I think it's interesting, Cosmo Brown is really one of the few characters in the movie who celebrates the lowbrow and film as entertainment. His whole song, Make Him Laugh, is saying, you know, forget Shakespeare that's you're not going to make a name for yourself doing Shakespeare you know slip on a banana peel Uh, so he really celebrates it where do you think Lena Lamont would come down on that I mean if someone asked her about it she's obviously it's I don't think it's something she thinks about but do you feel that she believes that she is dignified or or just doesn't think about it at all?
0: Yeah, I think that's an interesting way to phrase it. It's another example of her lacking a self-critical side. So when the movie, at the opening of the movie, when you hear Don Lockwood talk to the press about his career and dignity was always what he focused on, the movie does this fascinating thing. He's speaking these lines, and then the movie is showing us the reality behind it you know, when he was supposedly doing Shakespeare, he's actually just acting out in the pool halls and, and and so forth. We immediately understand that what we're seeing on the screen is the truth, and what we're hearing is the lie, and it's kind of interesting in a movie that's about, you know, dubbing and synchronized sound and all that, that, that just comes naturally to us. But we also never think that, that Don believes it. He knows he's, he's, he's speaking a line. And Kathy Seldon, who talks about how the theater is so um superior to dumb show i mean she's hired to jump out of a cake right and so they're both really people who are in the entertainment business right and have a degree of pretension about it lena lamont seems to be unaware of of the fact that that's really the business she's in and i mentioned at the beginning this is one of the big debates about hollywood you know it's a is it important that movies make us laugh, as Cosmo Brown says, uh, or is it more important that they uh, have an important message to convey? Uh, can they do both? Uh, Singing in the Rain, like most musicals, is very affirmative about the joy that comes from song and dance and laughter. Uh, we see that in Make him Laugh. We see it in the happy ending to the movie. Uh, and we also see it in the great, um, what's become iconic number, "Singing in the Rain," which is one of those self-reflexive musical numbers. It's a song about singing in a musical about mu- musicals in a movie about Hollywood.
1: And dignity actually is also a, maybe not a theme, but it definitely comes up in the artist too. There's a, there's a newspaper headline, where George Valentine, uh, who I. I can only assume they they took that from Valentino, sort of a combination of Douglas Fairbanks and Valentino, where he says, "I'm not a puppet, I'm an artist." And and that there's a sense of dignity in in what he does. He certainly has a sense of dignity of what he does. And there and there's even that scene where uh, Pepe Miller, he overhears her being interviewed and she sort of puts him down. She does a sort of Kathy Selden of saying, well, silent is, you know, mu- posing and mugging and I can talk. Uh, so while it's not as, I would say, as, as major a theme in the artist as it is in Singing in the Rain, it definitely is there.
0: I, I, I think it is, and... Um... You know the other lens that I th- is useful for thinking about the artist, and you know, increasingly, movies, and especially if they're movies about movies, are made out of other movies. To some extent, you know, you point out that the people in 1952 watching Singing in the Rain, uh, if they were old enough, could certainly remember the transition from silence. I think for the generation watching The Artist, and for the filmmakers making The Artist, Singing in the Rain is probably their history about that that they're drawing on uh, because it's it's become so familiar to us but i think it's useful also to think of a star is born as a background to the artist you know and that's one of the most important movies about hollywood uh, remade multiple times uh and the key idea in that is you have two stars an established male star whose career goes into decline and a young female star Uh, whose career takes off, and they fall in love sort of as the axes of their careers cross. And in A Star is Born, uh, the main character that's in decline retreats into depression, into alcoholism, and into suicide. And the artist comes about as close to that as you possibly can. Uh, And in fact, he's saved by the dog. Right. That that keeps him... uh, He's saved actually by a kind of cinematic... um, a trick or, or cliche And more broadly of course He's saved by Bobby Miller um, And that allows them to have The kind of happy ending That you don't get in, in A Star is Born uh, But to go back to the question About dignity I think there is a piece That the, the declining star In A Star is Born Or in the artist Is seen as someone Who has a great career That is now being devalued you know, the audience has moved on, and that is seen as something that makes him question uh, the meaning of his existence and the reason for his life, and I think that is related to that. And it's reinforced by the title of the film, of course, to call it The Artist is to put your sort of money on, yes, it's art, not just entertainment.
1: I was watching some of the bonus features of the the Artist DVD, and... At one point, James Cromwell, who plays the chauffeur to George Valentine, he says, and I'm paraphrasing, that Hollywood is a character in the film and that to the rest of the world, Hollywood represents magic, hopefulness, possibility, and America itself. So my question is, does the fact that the artist is directed by... And its two main stars are French people and not Americans. Does that have a different effect on it from, you know, as opposed to Singing in the Rain, which is entirely American?
0: Hmm. I don't know. Um, you know, the French know American movies and American cinema really well. Uh, and, and they love it. Sometimes they know it better than Americans do. And, and the movie is, you know, is, is American in its its setting. But I'm sure there's something there. I'm not sure I can quite put my finger on what it might be. Maybe even the decision to create it as a silent movie, which is a dramatically uncommercial risk to take with a movie, right? Yeah. Just like people don't like to watch movies with subtitles, they certainly don't like to watch silent movies. And that might say something about a French approach to it as opposed to an American approach to the same subject.
1: And there were also actors... Uh, during the silent era for example Greta Garbo who uh, had thick accents and who they were concerned about you know would American audiences be accepting of these accents Uh, I I thought of that for for some reason this was the first time I thought of that that at the very end of the movie when he says with pleasure I'm not even going to attempt doing a French accent but he says it you know obviously in his voice with a with a pretty heavy french accent and i thought that was it sort of reminded me of the whole you know garbo speaks type of type of scenario that maybe this was why cuz we never really actually get a reason as to why he won't speak in film why he's so resistant to it and why he doesn't want to talk and Is it because he has an accent?
0: You know, I hadn't thought about that. Uh, The impression I got is that he feels, you know, when when Poppy Miller uh, offers to cast him in a talking picture, that he doesn't know how to do that kind of acting. Um, There's not the clear reference to his voice the way there is with Leo Lamont's. But it's certainly true that one of the things that silent movies did was to create kind of a level playing field for People who were immigrants or who were foreign uh, or who might not be able to do different accents. You know, think about the comedy that's in Hail Caesar about the uh, cowboy actor trying to be in a drawing room drama. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's very much actually like Lena Lamont saying, I can't stand him. Uh, and then you've got a uh, wood that it were possible in Hail Caesar. Um, you don't have that problem in the world of silent films. Uh, and so I think uh, it had a certain leveling uh, effect. Certainly, it's not level in terms of the importance of physical appearance, um, but I, I think that's that's part of it. The film certainly never explicitly says that his voice would be a problem, um, but he seems to just simply not think it's possible.
1: Yes, yes, and he does have, the only line that possibly could be uh, interpreted that way is that he does say no one wants to see me speak. Mm-hmm. And I thought, so right. you think, well, why? <laughs>
0: yeah, uh, and of course the movie, I think it, it very quickly throws in an answer to solve all the problems at the end when they say, oh, you can dance. Um, and it's a great dancing scene at the end, and it echoes the fact that they had danced together um, you know, earlier in the movie. Um, but it's also a very singing in the rain or even pennies from heaven kind of resolution that it is uh, the world of, of of song and dance that will allow the problem that we're struggling with this, in this film to be solved and for the people we want to get together to get together.
1: And and actually, even Singing in the Rain does a little bit of a nod to Star is Born in that he's clearly older than Kathy Seldon. Uh, clearly, his career the majority of his career is behind him, she's on the rise, and she is the one that sort of builds him up. Now, unlike A Star is Born, he is able to ascend with her because he can dance and sing, but there is that little bit of a, you know, the older actor and the rising star.
0: Yes, I think, that, I think that's true, and um, I think it's a very important theme, and you know, For your younger listeners, it may be useful to remind them that the original A Star is Born is about movie actors, not musicians.
1: Right. It's not, it's not Lady it's, Gaga.
0: Not Lady Gaga, but it's also not Judy Garland, and that's a wonderful movie as well. It's also about Hollywood. But in order to create a believable musical, just like in Singing in the Rain, um, they, they took the character of Esther Blodgett um, in uh, A Star is Born, and... Um, turned her into actually quite an accomplished singer um even though they put her in the movies and so forth but that allowed uh george cooper to make a star is born into a musical and then remade twice since then uh without a hollywood basis just a, a setting in pop music
1: so moving um moving ahead to to sullivan's travels uh the one interesting thing i well many interesting things but one of the interesting things about this movie is that it actually has very little to do with actors. He's a director. And so this is a different uh, take on the movies about Hollywood and movies about movies. He's uh, wants to write or direct. It's not really clear if he would write it. I just sort of got the I just sort of assumed he would write it, but maybe he would just direct the the movie oh brother where art thou which of course famously is then made by the coen brothers which brings us back to hail caesar so there's sort of (laughs) cyclical thing there but uh what is the difference that or what is the different message maybe that is given when you are presenting a director as opposed to actors
0: yeah, well, when you look at movies about the movies, they take on different elements of the writing process. There's an interesting subgenre of movies that focus on writers, um, like The Player, for example, although the producer's just as important in that movie. And
1: Barton Fink, another Coen Barton Brothers. Barton Fink,
0: a Coen Brothers movie, or In a Lonely Place with Bogart as the screenwriter. Certainly the actors are a little more common, and it's there in the subplot um, with Veronica Lake, uh, who's a... a, a you know, is the, I mean, one of the basic what-price-Hollywood-star-is-born type motifs is of the person coming to try and make their fortune in Hollywood and, and failing.
1: And who's um, not even given a name. I find that very she's interesting. Just she's a just
0: girl the... in the picture. Yeah. It? And it is kind of a throwaway, and the movie sort of admits that. There has to be a girl in the picture. I shouldn't say it's a throwaway, because their scenes together are good, but it's a little bit ancillary to the main plot. Um, I think Probably the biggest difference is the power dynamic. When you read you know the literature about Hollywood, the so-called Hollywood novel, one of the big themes in the experience that American and British writers who went to Hollywood had is they had much less autonomy in the world of Hollywood and the the power the producer was much more powerful than an editor and they could you know have five different people working on the script you were working on and you didn't know it and so forth. And that was a very difficult transition for people who were were writers and they often felt that the producers were you know uneducated uncultured people who only cared about money uh and that is a theme in Sullivan's travels so as a director he's a little bit in between he's got to work with his producers um on the other hand he has a kind of power so he can offer to get Veronica Lake a role and to introduce her to Lubitsch um So he's a little bit a middle manager in the Hollywood world, you know, in charge of his picture, um, but still uh, subject to the producers who want him to make Ants in Their Pants, 1932, or or, or whatever. So I think that's a difference. I imagined him as a writer-director, probably because Preston Sturgis is one of the great writer-directors. Yes. Uh, But certainly he wants to, uh, the whole premise of the film is he wants to make a different kind of movie. He wants to make a serious picture that takes on what's happening in the depression
1: and it's mentioned in the book also that it it, that Sullivan's travels deals with the divided nature of filmmaking and film viewing and one of the things that I find interesting in the movie is that from the very beginning everyone he comes across tells him this is a ridiculous idea just make comedies that's what people want Uh, And he refuses to listen to anybody, even from people who, you know, like Veronica Lake, who he says he wants to find trouble and be a hobo. She actually is poor and is, you know, thumbing rides back back east. In a sense, he's the she's the audience that he wants to make these movies for. And she's saying, I don't want to see that movie. I want to see a comedy. What? Why is he so uh, determined in this in this quest of his, and why do you think that it finally changes when he's when he's with the prisoners?
0: Well, I think talking about the audience and what that means and how it's conceived is uh, a way to answer that question. One of the things I talk about in the book is that one of the ways in which self-referentiality is presented in movies is when we actually see a movie being screened inside a movie, the movie within the movie, the framed film. And there are various handful of techniques you can use to show that. You can have the movie within the movie fill the whole screen so what the audience is seeing in the main movie is the same thing as what the audience within is seeing Uh, You can back up a little so that you show a curtain or a frame around it and so you're fully aware that it's not the movie you're watching, but a movie inside it. Um, You can have an angled shot that shows the audience and it shows the movie as well. uh, You can focus on the audience or you can string together a whole series of shots that are moving from one to another. And uh, a lot of these movies about the movies have multiple scenes of movies within movies. And in Sullivan's Travels, there are really three big scenes like that. The first is at the very beginning, in which the movie within the movie fills the screen, and it's something he's shot um, that is, uh, is presented as the struggle between capital and labor as two people struggle on top of a train. We see the very end of it. There's no dialogue in it, but it's a melodramatic scene. comes out to the end, and then there's what I call a reality cut, and that is where the thing that's open, Filling the whole screen for us The camera pulls back and shows that it's a movie Within a movie, in this case a screening room And Sullivan is arguing With his producers about whether anyone wants To see it, but it's interesting That that mode of presentation uh, Doesn't show an audience at all At the end, we have the audience is the producers And the director In the middle of the, the film He uh, goes with the, the Two women that he's doing odd jobs for When he's pretending to be a panelist Uh, take him to a triple feature melodrama, and he's highly uncomfortable sitting between them, and we never see what's on the screen. We see the audience entirely, and it's a very unflattering picture of the audience. We got people noisily munching popcorn, we got kids making noises, uh, and we've got him uncomfortably between, uh, between the women. Most dramatically, what happens at the end, when the prisoners go into the church, and watch the, the Disney cartoons, we get the more common suturing together of multiple shots. We see what's on the screen and we cut to the faces of the audience uh, illuminated by the light of the projector uh, and they're, you know, overcome with laughter and with joy, even though they're in this miserable prison where they're mistreated. Um, when you pull all those things together, the movie seems to be saying this is how he realizes what the audience really wants By being part of that audience There's a moment I think when he turns to someone and says I'm laughing aren't I um, He experiences it as a member of the audience He experiences it along with the people all along He's wanted to get close to And had such difficult difficulty doing that um, However I think the most important thing about Sullivan's Travels Is that it's an oversimplification To say that the message of the movie is that you should make comedies to delight people um, and as shallow as you want to be. I think they wanted to use Chaplin movies there and couldn't get the rights, so they used cartoons instead. Um, because I think you have to step back and ask what kind of movie did Preston Sturgis make? Right. And he made a film. I mean, Sturgis is a great comedian, and there's great comic dialogue in his films. But this movie also spends a fair amount of time in the middle, uh, showing us poverty, homelessness wrongful incarceration uh people dying who have uh no recognition of who they are people being mistreated in prison and having lives of utter hopelessness that's not what the film is about it's not a ponderous message film and it's clear that Sturgis is not at all interested in that but it's also not just a light comedy that has no connection to what's happening in the world and I think that Reading the actual film we've seen against the message that comes from that final scene is important uh, to what Sturgis is, is trying to get at. That there, it's an oversimplification to just say movies should be a total distraction from what's happening in the world, or they should be a sort of ponderous allegory um, about, you know, capital and labor or human suffering. Well, it's almost like, you know, it
1: i think I, it made me think of Mary Poppins and you know a spoonful of sugar. It's like you can give, you can do a film that shows poverty and issues of you know real everyday life, as long as you wrap it up in a in a sort of attractive blanket of Veronica Lake and and Joel McRae and have some a little bit of slapstick and some sort, you know, some comedy that you, that really the best product is to do both. And that mm-hmm. that will give, you know, you can sort of send the message in a more, in a more pleasing way.
0: It's the comedy they have at the beginning with, uh, but with a little sex in it. Right. Uh, can be a message picture as long as it has a little sex in it. And, you know, this is a, this is a debate we're still having, um, it actually was kind of pointed this year, um, which is obviously a very strange year for film, with most people not being able to go to the theaters. Um, but as the Oscars were coming out, people were noting the contrast between a Hollywood world that is dominated by the Marvel motion pictures um, and the Oscar nominations, where you know *Nomadland* wins wins Best Picture. Um, and you know up, up against a variety of other various serious films about very difficult topics and, and great films as well but that Nomad Land versus Godzilla versus King Kong kind of contrast or, or split and the question that some people asked I noticed this just in discussion about it is you know where is the world that there used to be in Hollywood where there were mainstream popular films uh, that had serious dramatic content and um, You know, whether it was uh, a Betty Davis melodrama or the best years of our lives or something like that, that now it's sort of either the mass market, absolutely mindless entertainment uh, or very serious, uh, grim films. It's an oversimplification, I think, but it's a reminder that. What they're debating in Sullivan's Travels is still part of our discussion about what's the place of Hollywood in our culture.
1: And Martin Scorsese famously recently just made a you know made a comment about that about how Marvel films aren't real films, is aren't real cinema. Uh, and and it's interesting because we're in another sort of transition period, particularly with the last year of so many movies not coming out in theaters and coming out on our devices. And, and uh, I remember about maybe before the pandemic, Spielberg sort of saying, oh, movies that come out on Netflix shouldn't be considered for Oscars. Those are real movies. You have to, a movie has to come out in a theater for it to be a real movie. Well, what happens when you can't go to the movie theater and you have to stay home? Uh, So we're, it's interesting that you're right. This is still... A conversation that's going on as to what is considered real cinema, an acceptable cinema.
0: Yeah, you know, it's fascinating, the discussion about devices, and when you think of these Marvel films, which are bigger and bigger special effects, and the idea of people watching them on smaller and smaller screens, um, is, is, is somewhat ironic, I think. Um But it is an ongoing... The other thing I think about with the debate about, you know, should a Netflix film, uh, Netflix release be eligible for the Oscars is that, um, you know, there have been a lot of changes in how people watch motion pictures over, you know, the 130-so years of of moving pictures. Uh, You know, the early years in which there would be a live pianist or an organist, sometimes vaudeville acts uh, in between features, uh, sometimes a variety of shorts... Uh, interacting. Often those movies were in theaters that used to be vaudeville or burlesque. Uh, The transition we've been talking about between silent and and talking pictures, um, through most of the history of motion pictures, people did not have any kind of access to the films that weren't out right now. Um, You know, the idea that we can go and watch Sullivan's Travels or uh, Singing in the Rain uh, at the time of those movies, that was not really the case. Uh, I mean, you could see the movies that were out that week. Um, and that has changed. And then, as you know people started to watch on, on DVRs and so forth, the other thing is that they were reminded with uh, both the, the time of the coming of talkies and then the co- coming of television and then the coming of the VCR that all of these things were thought to mean the uh, the death of Hollywood, right? the death of motion pictures. Uh, people are saying that now again that streaming will be the the death of motion pictures, and I think uh, the form of telling narratives through uh, video uh, has been, you know, remarkably vivid and viable, and the uh, rumors of its death have been exaggerated.
1: <laughs> One more thing on Sullivan's travels: I've always found it interesting that not only the the final movie that he sees, the cartoon. Not only does that scene take place in a church, but in a black church. Mm-hmm. And I've always thought that was a very fascinating uh, decision. What Could you speak a little bit about that and what you think the significance of that is?
0: Yeah, I think it is very important, both things, that it's in a church, and that it's in a black church, and that before the prisoners come in, they sing, Let My People Go. Um, you know, which is you know, taken from Exodus. It's, an, it's a, a song that had importance under uh, slavery. Um, it implies a very serious topic that they're talking about: what liberates people. And the final image, which is of these people laughing in their chains uh, in a church, uh, is I think one of the most powerful images of, in all of film. And it's it's very suggestive and far reaching. It raises the question of whether motion pictures serve a kind of religious function for us. Is the movie theater a kind of church? Uh, I think that's a nice segue by the way to Hail Caesar where the opening image is Christ on the cross. Yes. Um, the fact that it is a black church and that the minister exhorts uh, the worshipers there not to look down upon the prisoners who are gonna come there, that they're going to welcome them and and not look down on them. Certainly the idea that there is a unity Among the downtrodden Among the people who are locked out of power and privilege Uh, You know, we use the term privilege a lot now It's a contemporary locution But a big part of the film in Sullivan's travels Is people reminding Sullivan He doesn't know anything about um, The problems of the Depression About homelessness and hunger uh, And so forth And in the first, the comedy of the first, like 30 40 minutes of the the picture is he keeps trying to find out and his privilege keeps rescuing the the land yacht that follows him or when he gets in trouble they bail him out of prison along with veronica lake and it's only when he loses his identity uh in fact undergoes a sort of ritual death um and eventually confesses to his own murder as a way to be reborn as the new sullivan that he's allowed to actually have this experience of a world outside of his Hollywood bubble. And I think uh, Sturgis's choice to to have a black church there uh, broadens a little the scope of the social issues that he's pointing to that are part of the world, and we have to decide what's the relationship of motion pictures to the oppression uh, in our society.
1: So, as you say, it's a perfect segue into Hail Caesar, which has... Uh, the The image of Christ on the cross is the first thing you see in the film. Uh, some of the things that I wrote down just for my notes, it's it. I thought it was interesting. Hale Caesar deals with Hollywood images and secrets, as well as theology, which we see. I think they touch on a little bit in Sullivan's Travels and communism. Which they also touch on a little bit in Sullivan's travels. Uh, supposedly, he's making movies for communists um, and not for the people in Pittsburgh. So, so I, I just wanted to ask, what um, what do you see as the main themes of of *Hail Caesar*? And and what I I hate to use the word message, but what do you think the Cohen Brothers maybe were saying with with these with these themes?
0: And that's a good question. you know as, as I watched it again in preparation for our conversation, and I'm glad I did because I actually enjoyed it more this time around. One of the things that struck me is almost everything they show they show as corrupt and ridiculous. Um, it's really a pox on everything. You know the the communists are people in an elegant Malibu seaside retreat uh, having these intellectual discussions. Um, you know, all the people working at the studio, save one, are shown as, as, as pretty ridiculous characters, and that certainly includes Clooney's character as well. Um, it's hard to come to the conclusion, it's sort of hard to avoid, but it doesn't say that the moral center is this guy Mannix, um, who's really a Hollywood fixer. Um, But he's the one whose dedication is never really questioned. Uh, Maybe it's a little bit like the lead Francis McDormand's character in Fargo. Um, You know, he believes, at one point he says, um, the picture has worth. And his job is to make sure that the studio functions and that all of these crazy people um, who he has to kind of rein in actually work together to produce a picture and it's one of the when you watch a movie like that you do wonder how movies ever get made yes uh it has something you know successful comes out on on the screen i'm not very comfortable with that as a conclusion you know because he he is in some ways also kind of a ridiculous character you know going to confession um several times a day and you know so agonized about everything he deals with and uh, feeling in, in essence superior to everybody that he deals with, um, so so maybe he's being mocked too, and it's a it's a movie that's sort of making fun of everything. There, I think it does that with affection, um, and the theology question is a tricky one too, because uh, you know you have this wonderful scene where um, Mannix, the uh, I guess he's a sort of pro, uh, a kind of producer. There is pitching the idea of Hail Caesar, a tale of the Christ, to an ecumenical council of religious leaders, um, and their discussion becomes completely ridiculous.
1: Oh, I, that's one of the funniest scenes in the movie for me.
0: It, it is very funny when the rabbi says he's the, you know, he's the son of God. Does God have a dog too? Yes. Um, but it, it, I think it shows several things. One is that I don't think Hollywood has done well presenting religion because they are so concerned about not offending anyone. Um, and so it's been a very difficult topic to be dealt with with any kind of seriousness. Um, you know, you get more like the Bells of St. Mary's or something, uh, a very bland, almost non-denominational uh, approach to uh, religion uh, because you're sort of trapped in this world in which you're, you have to reach a mass audience and thus to put in things that would alienate part of the audience, you know, limits your ability. But what I wonder about too, is, you know, the idea that I carry from Sullivan's travels are, are movies sort of what's ultimately being worshipped, the kind of entertainment that they provide. There's the voiceover narrative in hail Caesar, which is comical as well. Um, but it makes a comment at one point I jotted down the, the phrase that said, um, What's it? The, uh, this is the medium that produces this year's ration of dreams for all the weary people of the world. Um, which is a phrase that could be said in Sullivan's Travels. Yeah. Right? That, yeah. Um, so I'm not sure I have a good answer to it. There's uh, a tremendous amount of naughty joy. In presenting Hollywood So one of the things you get in terms of movies Within the movies or scenes of filming Within the movie Is you get sort of a sampler of genres With very elaborate numbers Like the number that's done In the Esther Williams-Styles swimming movie um, It must have cost a fortune to make And a a lot of takes Uh, The sailor musical That's number that's done The Carmen Miranda tropical musical The biblical epic that's being filmed Uh, drawing room uh, dramas, um, and westerns, you get this whole range of genre parody. And on top of it, you get like a dozen different Hollywood familiar stereotypes or tropes. You know, the Western actor suddenly in a sophisticated movie with his diction lessons, studio-manufactured star romances, gossip columnists, scandal-fixing, even the TV crisis is, is hinted at by the guy from Lockheed trying to hire Mannix. You know, what future is in pictures. Communist writers as ineffectual dilettantes, um, religious censorship and, and, and so forth. So there's just a, there's a lot of stuff in there and it's very enjoyable. Um, I, I think it's hard to pull it together to a conclusion though we see the familiar themes about what's the role of Hollywood. Is it to entertain or instruct? Uh, What's its relationship to um, the political uh, issues of the time? How much does the profit motive corrupt the art? Um, Which is, I think, one of the things that's more prominent in Hail Caesar than it is in some of the other films we've been talking about.
1: Well, one of the things that I find interesting is uh, to hear what actors think about their movies. And so Clooney said uh, Hail Caesar is a movie about movie stars. And Josh Brolin said that it was an old-school look at the loony bin of the of the movie industry uh, and that he said everyone likes special features and this is an entire movie about special features. Yeah. And in a way, it's it's true. And one of the things that I thought was very interesting was actually the executive producer of the movie, Rob Graff, uh, made the comment that and it actually applies to both Hail Caesar and Singing in the Rain, is that it's you have movie stars playing movie stars. And there's a sort of meta thing that's going on of, that I think the Coen brothers were really smart about, which is not everyone in this day and age is going to be familiar with Esther Williams. Right. But everyone's going to know Scarlett Johansson. And not everyone is gonna, um, you know, maybe more people might be familiar with Ben Hur, but it's not necessarily, you know, in 2021, not everyone, certainly younger audiences may not be familiar with that, but you put George Clooney in there and all, all of a sudden you sort of can connect to it a bit more. Um, so what is that? It, you know, it's, it's interesting because, in the artist, you do have stars like James Cromwell and John Goodman, but certainly American audiences don't know, are not familiar with those French actors. So what? how do you think it changes if, if it does when you cast major movie stars in the roles of major movie stars? And if the audience, you know, the familiarity or not that the audience might have with them?
0: Well, I think... When you deal with familiar movie stars, people inevitably watch the movie with a double focus, right? They they re- recognize the person is playing a character, but they also bring to it their understanding of George Clooney or Scarlett Johansson or, you know, Humphrey Bogart, um, you know, in a movie from another era, or Betty Davis. Right. Uh, back then, it was even more blatant. We go see a Betty Davis picture it was a kind of picture. Um, To go see Uh, So you have that double focus It's both Scarlett Johansson And she's playing a character And the relationship between those two Can be comical So that Scarlett Johansson Is playing um, sort of, you know A sharp, talking um, You know, woman who's having multiple affairs and, And trying to hide her pregnancy And all this And George Clooney is playing Kind of an affable buffoon And so there's a comedy Between their public images Uh, And the role that they're taking on And of course they're playing fictional characters Which helps I think a whole different dynamic When you have a famous actor playing a real person um, Where they have to imitate someone else And you you don't want that imitation to be too broken But here where they just have to play a movie star uh, I think it's part of the the fun of, of the movie And it's very deliberate there It's also something you see in a movie like The Player Um where, which includes you know, some people playing themselves, but for the most part, um, a ton of well-known actors, not necessarily superstars like George Clooney and Scarlett Johansson, uh, sort of populating every scene. So that feeling that you know, part of what you encounter uh, on a back lot or a studio is this world with these great celebrities, you know, elbow to elbow or you know, one, one soundstage next to the other, um, and there's a kind of, uh, guilty pleasure in that. It is especially appropriate in Hail Caesar, which is, um, very much about, uh, protecting, uh, stars from scandal. That's part of Maddox's job. And that is really about the gap between the public image of the celebrity and the reality and that love hate relationship that through the whole history of movies, people have had with, um, With movie actors that they both idolize them and they love to hear salacious gossip about them
1: which actually moves perfectly into one of the final things which I thought was fabulous I had not seen Hail Caesar since it had first come out so it was really fun to watch it again uh the fact that he had Tilda Swinton Mm -hmm. as uh essentially Hedda Hopper and Luella Parsons as twins playing both. Um, so he not only, the, the Coen brothers not only do Hollywood filmmaking, but also the gossip, the gossip mm-hmm. columnists. Uh, and I, th- I think it's interesting that they cast Tilda for both, basically saying they're, they're different sides of the same coin.
0: Yeah, exactly and it's very clever and, and I do think the, the gossip columnists are right at the middle of this whole dynamic that we love the myth of this great the great lives that these people have who are larger than life and I think if anything we're more of a celebrity driven era than ever um, where people are able to sort of develop their celebrity into a into a brand like the Kardashians or something like that um, and at the same time the appetite for scandal about those figures is is, is limitless. Uh, much more so now, as a, you know, one of the dynamics in that film is that the scandal that they're holding over Clooney's head is something they can't really publish. Um, and so they think he's somewhat protected because everyone knows the story, but in the time it's set, which I guess is early 1950s, um, they couldn't actually print those accusations.
1: And what's interesting also is that because uh, many people who saw them, who saw *Hail Caesar* may not have known that Josh Brolin is actually playing a real person. It's highly, yes. it's highly dramatized and fictionalized. It's very loosely based, but Eddie Mannix was a real person in Hollywood, and he was a fixer.
0: Right. So he's it's the only real person in the, <laughs> in, the, in the whole film. And I do think his role, the decision to center on him, um, is a very interesting one. To have this wild, woolly, throwing everything in the kitchen sink type film, uh, swirling around this person who seems to be, you know, a paragon of focus, right, and of achievement. I, two of the things I think are most interesting about the Mannix character, um, you know, one is that he has to make the choice if he wants to stay in this world or not and he does um, he actually finds it much more satisfying than what might be the easier job he's being offered with an 10 year contract at Lockheed um, the second is the moment in which he slaps Clooney in the face um, and he just sort of you know, knocks him about that he would bite the hand that feeds him uh, again another theme in Uh, Films about Hollywood Certainly is what people accuse the Hollywood Authors of doing when they wrote books about Hollywood that were uncomplimentary They were biting the hand that feeds him And to the extent that he's Seen as the moral center He's sort of shaking Clooney out of this idea That um, You know that ultimately What is in, uh, in In Hollywood Is an exploitative relationship Between capital and labor And his view is that, no, it's about bringing joy to people.
1: One of the things that I thought about as I was watching Hail Caesar is all of the Hollywood, whether it was apocryphal or not, uh, lore that the Coen brothers throw in. And it's like they had to know, and maybe they didn't, but I'm assuming that they knew that most people we're not gonna know all of this. I mean, the the pregnancy and giving your kid up, the kid up for adoption, um, was Loretta Young and Clark Gable, and and the whole sort of on the town uh, anchors away, you know, Navy scene. The he throws in Busby Berkeley, throws in. Uh, they even have a little line when he, when Clooney's speaking to the communists about, well, what if I name names? You know, um, so they really throw in, as you said, the kitchen sink in terms of cinema history, but make it it's enjoyable whether or not you know all of that. And I uh, because I actually when I watched it again, I I watched it. Uh, with my boyfriend who had not seen it. And he didn't know any of that, but he thoroughly enjoyed it. And so it's like you get another layer if you are familiar with that, but it's not necessary. And so my question is why are movies like Seeing in the Rain and Sullivan's Travels and all, I mean, The Artist won Best Picture? Why are these movies? That are seemingly very niche movies about Hollywood. Why do audiences flock to them? Why do they like them if they're not really, you know, into Hollywood or into cinema history? What is it about these movies that that people are attracted to? Because Seeing in the Rain has really only grown in popularity oh, yes. since it since it came out, and I saw that it was when it came out the year that it came out it was only two spots uh ahead it was not in the top three it was like number five in box office and it was only two spots ahead of the esther williams movie million dollar mermaid which hail caesar sort of you know does a parody of um so why do you think audiences still uh flock to these movies
0: yeah that's a great question um First, I'll say something about Singing in the Rain that uh, for several years I taught a class in, in classical Hollywood cinema. And it would include you know a range of, of films from the, the 1930s through the 1960s. And some of them were very tough for contemporary college students uh, to enjoy. Um, they, they were upset sometimes when films were in black and white, they couldn't understand that. Um, but even just the... They had not aged well in terms of contemporary consciousness. Um, everybody loves Singing in the Rain. It, it, it is a film that has has grown. Um, you know, my students absolutely adored it and, though they didn't necessarily know a lot of that history of motion pictures. Um, I, I think people are drawn to film... Well, first of all, I think a lot of Hollywood filmmakers are steeped in this kind of stuff even more so now, and they're drawn to those topics because they're fascinated by the world in which they work uh, and by its oddities. But that fascination has always been shared, and that's part of the double focus. When people go to a movie, they're getting wrapped up in a story, but they're also engaging with this meta-concept of Hollywood, a world of, of, of stars, uh, a world that creates these fabulous entertainments, that so people have beautiful homes and great swimming pools and access to this this fabulous kind of life that uh, most of us can only imagine and just as when we watch the film we see Clooney as a character and we see Clooney as George Clooney this incredibly handsome man with a whole uh, resume of motion pictures and, and a giant celebrity I think things that offer to the audience here's a little deeper look into that mysterious and wonderful world of Hollywood are very enticing
1: yeah, yeah, I could I could see that. Well, uh, this has been a just a wonderful conversation. Uh, I really want to thank you for for joining me today and and talking about this. Uh, Sing in the Rain is probably my top three favorite films ever. <laughs> um, it's actually the only movie I didn't rewatch for our talk. Only because I've probably seen it 2,000 times and could and could go through it you know line by line right now um, and so I wanted to focus on the others that I hadn't seen in a while but uh, but I really want to thank you for your your input your insight and uh, for joining me today
0: Well thank you Emmy it's been a pleasure I appreciate all the great questions you had and just the opportunity to to talk about uh, film with somebody who knows knows it so well and loves it so much. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Real Woman. Join me next time when the topic will be pre-code era films of the 1930s. Joining me for that discussion will be Mark Vieira, author of the book Forbidden Hollywood, The Pre-Code Era, 1930 to 1934. Good night.